The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Claggy Sponge Edition. On today's show, Breaking Bad has returned for a two-hour coda on Netflix. El Camino sews up the loose thread known as Jesse Pinkman. And then the great British baking show, or Bake Off, what have you, has gone from a lovely little piece of Anglophilia to a global juggernaut. We discuss its latest iteration and whether it is held on to in the face of its mega success, whether it's held on to its tender charms. And finally, have the high hopes for the streaming revolution finally run aground on a glut of money and content and good old corporate greed? We will discuss a package in the LA Times. Speaking of which, joining me is Julia Turner, the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times uh, and the editor in charge of that package. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who is the film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana. Hello, good day. All right. Well, diving in, Breaking Bad is one of the, I think it's fair to say, truly iconic shows in the history of the medium. The story of Walter White, chemistry teacher, nebbish, turn, turning over five seasons into a ruthless drug kingpin is one of the most perfectly realized dramatic and character arcs in the history of TV. But there was one loose thread at the end of the bloodbath finale. What happens to his sidekick, Jesse Pinkman? You'll recall that Jesse was Mr. White's class fuck-up back when he still taught high school. He turned him into his trusty meth-cooking sidekick. And it was Jesse, I would think it's fair to say, played by Aaron, beautifully by Aaron Paul, who over the course of the TV became the sh- kind of the show's moral witness and, uh, and, and a witness to uh, Walter White's total loss of humanity. Any sequel worth its salt would be asking not just whether Jesse lives or dies, but whether and how he is saved or damned. Now we know, I think. Uh, Anyway, let's listen to a clip. Where'd you go? If you were me. Doesn't matter, I'm not you. Seriously, come on. Like if you were my age, just play along. Make some conversation. Alaska. Yeah? Yeah, if I were your age, starting fresh. Alaska. It's the last frontier. Up there, you could be anything you want. Alaska. Start over. Start fresh. One could. Put things right. No. Sorry, kid. That's the one thing you can never do. All right, Dana, I'll start with you. Was that, was that laconic enough for your tastes? <laughs> uh, the, the word I'm seeing in relation to this show, this movie, is superfluous, though people seem to sort of like it. What, uh, what do you think? Well, it's, it's funny that you play that scene because I feel like that scene, that scene captures a lot about what works and doesn't work about this coda to Breaking Bad. So Jonathan Banks, you hear there as Mike Ehrmantraut, right? The um, the implacable hitman who also ends up being a character on Better Call Saul, the spinoff, which we I think will also be woven into this conversation to some degree. Uh, and we're not sure whether that scene really takes place or takes place in Jesse's imagination, right? Because obviously Mike is dead at the end of, of Breaking Bad. Uh, he died right by the river where that conversation is happening. You can hear the stream flowing in the sound clip. And 
that moment never happened during the show Breaking Bad that we know of. And so that's the thing that happens again and again in this show is that in a sort of fan fiction-like way, it moves back to recognizable locations, episodes, characters from Breaking Bad and and imagines this scene that we didn't see, right, which is now part of Jesse's memory and becomes part of our memory after seeing this show. And it's a pretty effective technique, but it also, at every moment that it happens, raises the specter of how much better that show was and how much more integral and necessary that show was than this coda is. I think Willa Paskin's review of this is summed up as perfectly how I feel about a cultural product as anything has in a long time. Every single thing she said was just right on. And uh, and one adjective she used to describe it was, sure, why not? <laughs> right? Sort of, <laughs> I have no objection to this existing, but it doesn't quite seem canonical. You know, although it's strange to say that when Vince Gilligan wrote and directed this and Dave Porter did the music and almost every recognizable Breaking Bad character does at least a brief cameo. I mean, it certainly is as is contiguous with that universe. But if there's one thing I didn't feel I needed after the Breaking Bad finale, it was any more information. I actually thought that the way we left Jesse, I remember spending that entire finale just praying that Jesse would live since it was obvious that, you know, Walt wasn't going to make it. And it was, as you say, going to be a bloodbath. Just please let Jesse live. And the fact that he does at the end, even though we have no idea what his future will be, and he seems completely messed up the last time we see him in Breaking Bad, it was perfectly satisfying. And so... Hmm. Spinning out what happens to him in the next few days, which is what this post-quell does, just seems kind of pointless. It doesn't really teach us that much new about the character, but it's nice to revisit that universe. Yeah, I mean, one thing that came up less than I would have thought, actually, in the reviews of this movie are is any reference to Better Call Saul. I mean, to me, Better Call Saul is just a miraculous, miraculously good show that should be more widely watched and, and be sparking more conversations, in part because it explores with similar moral complexity the flip side of the Walter White equation. The Walter White arc is this thwarted, uh, fundamentally law-abiding, nebbishy chemistry teacher uh, realizes that through a combination of smarts, ruthlessness, and breaking all the rules, he can build an empire. In Better Call Saul, we know that eventually uh, our main character, Jimmy McGill, will become... Saul, the sort of lawyer for criminals that we know knew him as in Breaking Bad, and we see kind of the pathos of him trying to stay on the right side of the line, trying to be good, trying to resist his natural urges towards badness and slipperiness and lying and evil. And it's just so good. It's so necessary. It's so interesting. It's such a it, it takes all of the filmmaking skill that they applied towards Breaking Bad, the creators of Breaking Bad. Um, and and puts it towards this equally urgent and fascinating moral quest. And this movie just seems so mm, fanservice-y uh, in, in comparison. And you still get just gorgeous shots of the desert and really incredible compositions of urban streetscapes where a car is hanging out under an overpass just so and a light comes on. And I mean, the things they're doing cinematographically are just as lovely but yeah, I mean, you kind of already knew that that's what happened to Jesse on his way to safety at the end of the finale, and it didn't quite need to get said. So it just felt unusually shaggy and indulgent for a group of creators who typically do stuff that's like taught, complicated and necessary. And that was what was so weird about it. It's also much morally simpler, right? I mean, the main concern that we have is in in the in this two hour wrap up is sort of 
is Jesse going to get what's coming to him? Will he will he be treated okay by the world? And Breaking Bad was much more willing to ask, well, does he deserve to be treated okay by mm-hmm. the world? Right. I mean, I, the funny thing about the about Breaking Bad was, you know, as I said in the intro, it's that arc is kind of as perfect as any five or six season, you know, a, a coherent narrative arc as you know that any TV show has ever pulled off. But we forget that along the way, it was like it was a pretty shaggy show. There was a lot of superfluity in it. Along the way, I don't think it knew it maybe knew where it was going, but it didn't know how it was going to stick its own landing until maybe in the second or third season. It fit a lot more um, into its arc and its framework than maybe we remember. And so funnily enough, you know, I had exactly the same feelings about this coda as I did about this show. A lot of it is really OTT, a lot of over the top, you know, preposterous twists, uh, super graphic, uh, cartoonish violence. Some of the suspense is just beautifully, beautifully done. Um, and then they're just, to my mind, absolutely transcendent actor on actor moments, including what you could argue. I mean, they're all, the fans are being serviced over and over and over again in this. So there are tons of what might be money shots, depending on what you loved about the show. But the money shot of money shots is just having Walter White seated at a diner with Jesse Pinkman pre-bloodbath, uh, having a conversation. And it just, you know, just to have Cranston inhabiting that part again. and. And the original premise of the whole thing, I mean, to me, the moment the show became, you know, uh, you know, its first gestalt was was for me watching Jesse Pinkman be unable to call his partner anything other than Mr. White. It was just this clever way of saying this kid is always going to be the chemistry student to this. He's always going to see Mr. White as the teacher. And they knew exactly what they were doing when they resurrected Cranston and Walter as Walter White in that scene, because that's exactly what that scene is about. I thought that was so sly, so in control. After all that buildup to neither underplay it or overplay it takes an astonishing level of confidence on the part of everyone involved in making that scene work. I will also just say, I mean, one of the great things about Breaking Bad and most of the best uh, peak TV dramas is that they tend to have good jokes along with their drama. But the the funny, there's a moment in that encounter when Jesse becomes peeved by a way in which Walter White has yes. uh, misremembered his youth that is just <laughs> so, so good. good. Like kind of worth it for the whole thing. I Julia, you took the words right out of my mouth. I is so I laughed so hard. It is it is precious. It is worth digging through all kinds of goo in order to find it. So, you know, considering me one of the fans who was serviced, I do think there there's one too many Amstud allusions, uh, you know, to the American frontier and, you know, we heard it in the clip. There is a Wild West quick draw. Uh there's a fireball. There's just a lot shoved into it, but you know, I, it, it it was on. I come out exactly where everyone else did. Totally unnecessary. Totally kind of great. <laughs> it's almost like indulging your weakness, right? Like it's sort of a weakness to want to go back to a show that's already completed its arc and, as you say, stuck the landing, and then just sort of dwell in its world for two more hours. But that's what this movie lets you do. I think I, I yeah. also just wanted to, to shout out a character who's so great in the original show but doesn't get that many arcs to himself, who gets his own sort of incredibly funny and dark arc, which is Todd, the the Nazi, mm. I don't know how you even describe him, the sort of dullard Nazi thug played by Jesse Plemons so beautifully in the show. And he returns not just for a quick cameo, as Mike Ehrmantraut does and Walter White does and other characters, but he gets a, a whole 
a little subplot to himself involving him and Jesse and a, a very evil caper that he takes him on. And uh, just Jesse Plemons is such an MVP of, of movies and TV and everything. Just think of all the stuff, the great stuff he's done just this year. Game Night, he was the funniest thing in that movie, right? Which we all loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. He was he was just in, you guys haven't seen it yet, but he has a wonderful s- small role in The Irishman, the new Martin Scorsese movie. Jesse Plemons can just be funny. He can be menacing. He can do anything. He was the best thing about Vice, too, that movie Vice that we all disliked, but he was great in it. And also, I mean, it would be remiss not to acknowledge that Robert Forster, who just died last week, the wonderful character actor who was probably best known to most viewers of our generation from Jackie Brown, uh, has a, a, a small but very pivotal role in this Breaking Bad sequel and is fantastic in it. Yeah. I mean, one since we have a, another bite at the Breaking Bad apple, there's one thing I've had on my mind for years about the show, which is that, you know, when I was growing up, movies still supplied people with these iconic moments and, you know, indelible lines that you repeated over and over again. And I was wondering, where's that gone? And it's just not in the cinema anymore. It's on streaming TV. And a perfect example is, you know, I am the one who knocks is just, you know, a piece of uh, deathless popular culture going forward. And this is the, to me, the one thing that the show nailed over and over and over again, it's, it's self-consciously heightened, climactic moments, you know, Hank figuring out that Walter is Heisenberg is one of the, I mean, you have set that up for years and years and years. Are you going to pull it off? It is one of the best, you know, actor on actor moments that I can think of in the history of like putting the human image on film. I mean, it just was that good. And um, anyway, so it was nice to have a little taste of that regardless of how much kind of, you know, I don't know, gratuitous bloat it might've been surrounded by. Even if all this does is send people to Better Call Saul, I mean, if you really want to have the experience that this movie is trying to give you, which is, you know, reopening a Breaking Bad adjacent universe that's as interesting and necessary and important feeling as Breaking Bad was, but but different from it, then just watch Better Call Saul. I think I agree with Julia. I think it's my favorite show on TV right now. And I cannot wait till it comes back. I've only watched the pilot. I'll binge the whole thing and we'll talk what? about it. What? What? Steve, that's outrageous. That's uh that's that's criminal. I mean, you, you it's not like up. I host a pop culture podcast. Why <laughs> would I be watching the show? Steven, you were tasked with doing that. Catch up on Saul so that we can talk about it as soon as it re reopens. Deal. Okay. This is called El Camino. It's written and directed, I should say, by the creator of Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan. It's streaming on Netflix. We're kind of on an interesting fence. Curious to hear what you guys think. Uh, go ahead and email us. All right, moving on. All right, before we go any further, I bet we have some business. Dana, what do you got? Stephen, the business this week is simply to reiterate that we have a couple of live shows coming up. We will be in L.A. and Vancouver this November. That is November 13th in Los Angeles at the Barnsdall Gallery Theater at Barnsdall Art Park and on November 15th in Vancouver at the Granville Island Stage. And you can now get tickets for both of these shows at Slate.com slash live. We will also have some sort of to-be-announced cocktail mingling hour probably associated with both these shows. In Slate Plus today, we have a friend of the podcast and special guest, Al Philreis, who's a professor of English at UPenn and head of the Kelly Writers House. He's going to talk with us about Harold Bloom, the literary critic and professor for many, many decades at Yale University, who is a steward of the canon, a controversial figure, just a gargantuan figure in literary criticism. So we'll talk about Harold Bloom with Al Phil Reese for our Slate Plus segment. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And in return, of course, you get extended ad-free versions of our show and many other great Slate shows. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus 
to join Slate Plus. All right, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, GBBO, the Great British Bake Off, it goes by a slightly different name in the United States because Pillsbury would sue them if it didn't. Uh, It combined British understatement and a degree of small world tenderness with super high pressure, high stakes uh, elimination contest vibes, uh, all via baking, which of course is so incredibly precise. Uh, The slightest error in temperature, ingredient, and everything collapses. Anyway, everyone loved the show, but like a good Perthivier requires a perfect balance of ingredients, heat, cooling, uh, attentiveness. It's undergone many changes along the way since PBS began airing it in the United States about five years ago. In England, it moved from the BBC to Channel 4, which is actually over there quite significant. It meant it went from public to commercial TV. Um, Along the way, huge sums of money were at stake. Its original hosts were replaced and one of its judges as well. The show is now a global juggernaut and the challenges, uh, the baking challenges within it are increasingly baroque. Has it kept its unique charms? Let's listen to a clip. So, for your technical challenge, Prue would like you to make six identical angel cake slices, each made of three layers of Genoese sponge. Now, the sponge layers must be sandwiched with a silky smooth Italian meringue <laughs> buttercream. Your angel cake slices should be topped with icing and feathered. Whatever that may be. Feathers on cakes? You've got an hour and three quarters on your marks. Get set. Big. Oh, God, I didn't want a Genoese sponge. And what have we got? Genoese sponge. I love an angel cake, but I like the cheap one, like the 50p job. Right, this is a proper one. To make the angel cakes, the bakers have all been given the same ingredients and Prue's complex 15-stage recipe. This is a bit, as I say, technical. It's so complicated. There's a lot of room for error here, huge error. Great choice, Brew. Angel cake slices for the first technical these bakers will have to face. I am feeling a little mean. It sounds simple enough, but the point is it's a Genoese sponge and it's really easy for that mixture to become flat. If they overmix, it's not just volume they'll lose. Texture becomes rubbery and it has to be light. And let's have a taste. Julia, let me start with you. I uh, I have to confess, like Better Call Saul, I'd never watched this show. I binged it over the last 72 hours and could not love it more. I now completely understand why everyone was captivated by it. Uh, like everyone else, I fell in love with that wonderful combination of four people who effectively hosted the show. Um, the original judges, Mary Berry... Paul Hollywood, who's this incredible sort of middle-aged fox who, like, fixes you with his blue-eyed stare like you're in a pair of gun sights. Uh, and then the uh, the two women, Perkins and uh, Guideroy, I might be mispronouncing that name. They met at Cambridge in 91 and are kind of a comedy duo. All of the balance seemed really perfect. I'm having trouble adjusting to the new group. What uh, What's your history with this show? I love that you have both just discovered this show and already become an instant nostalgist for its uh, better, purer history. <laughs> well, that's that's the, like so That's steep. what it is. It's a delivery system for instant nostalgia. <laughs> um, I actually uh, got hooked on the show in reverse, and I am also a, a Janie come lately to it. I only started watching it in August. I started watching season... The, I I watched two of the most recent seasons with the most recent cast and then fell so hard for it, I went back around to the original flavor cast. So I had the opposite experience with most viewers of getting used to Prue, Sandy, and Noel and only to go back to uh, discover the charms of Mary, um, Mel, and Sue. 
And honestly, it seems fine. Like they both are good. It's fine. <laughs> like I don't, I don't, uh, I, I think the thing that I actually find more jarring about the new productions is the increasingly elaborate cold opens, uh, which feel gratuitous and unnecessary in the, in the first few seasons. Um, they start the show with very low hijinks and now Sandy and Noel are kind of in costumes and it's just like, get me into that tent. I want to see some sponge. I want to see some proving drawers. Uh, I want to hear the pronunciation of a strained Eastern European cake product. Uh, I want to watch incredible techniques. I mean, the the charms of the show are manifold. Obviously, they have been sung by many singers before us. But I think my two favorite things about it are just extraordinarily patient attention to actual process. Like this is a show that respects your interest in baking and is not sort of using baking as an avenue to uh, to develop like personality conflicts. It It is very attentive to the chemistry of baking, the process of baking, and it creates drama out of baking in a way that is masterful, subtle, interesting, and precise, um, and that you... Uh, and that you can get very hooked on. Uh, and then the other thing I love about it is just the portrait of, um, you know, post-Empire Britain uh, that it offers with just a agglomeration of different British and occasionally continental accents, but just the 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 sheer number of different ways to have a British accent that are on display in this show is its other great charm. Uh, yeah, I can't help but wonder what is it. I almost wish we had an English guest to talk about the show because we're all experiencing it as Americans. And to me, a huge part of the charm is, as Steve opened up the segment saying, Anglophilia, you know, and just hearing, yeah, what does a Welsh accent sound like? And what is, you know, what is the, the nostalgic memory that you have of some, to us, strange British dessert from your childhood? Uh, that whole side of it must be very different if you're English. And I wonder if it feels like a, a fake nationalism or if it doesn't feel nationalistic at all. Even the location where it unfolds is this strange combination of this sort of Downton Abbey style castle that you only ever see in the distance, like a regal estate sort of thing. And then this big white tent where all the baking and judging happen. And once in a while, they wander through the field in between. Do they ever go in the castle? Do they sleep there? No, but that, that also feels so British. There's like a castle in the distance. Other people are in the castle, but you're just in the fields of Berkshire. But they never um, they never show where they you know during this these a period of apparently weeks that they're having the the cookoffs in the tent they never show where they stay right there's not a real world aspect where you see them interacting in their quarters or anything but I always imagine them going off to the castle at night to sleep well that's the other thing I love about the structure of it at, le- at least as I glean from context clues and maybe I'm wrong it seems like they go home between weeks that it's sort of a it's a it's a contest show but you're not actually locked in, you know, Paradise Mansion for two months with no missives from outside. They Mm -hmm. talk about taking the train home. They talk about practicing while they still have their normal jobs for the bakes each week um, and how they fit it in around their studies. And I I don't know, there's something that makes them feel more grounded in wherever they're coming from in their home communities, which makes the relationships that they forge with each other feel more real because it's less like they're in this hothouse performative summer camp where they're trying to be the funny one or the sexy one and they just they just seem so grounded in their lives 
Yeah, you're right that I didn't know that they went home in between weeks, but it, you're right that it shows just the right amount of their home lives. I'm just remembering the the very Brady building show that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and how how isolated the characters all seemed or the real people all seemed from their their real lives and how the thing that you would most that I would most want to learn from a Brady reunion is what are they all doing now? The show never told us. And this show just gives you a little bit of a glimpse. Here's their family members. Here's their job. Here's the person studying for their degree or whatever it is. And uh, and so you kind of like everyone. I mean, I think that's maybe my favorite thing about this show is that I can't stand mean reality shows. And the meanest this show gets is that, you know, the blue eyed Paul Hollywood will, will say that you have a bit of a bit of a claggy sponge in your angel cake. It's also full of great adjectives like claggy. Stodgy. Oh, stodgy. Yes, we wouldn't want stodgy. a stodgy crumb. No, no. Heaven forbid. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, nobody nobody is posed as the villain. And when somebody goes home, it's, you know, everybody sort of hugs them and there are tears and it's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's funny. He's a, quite a character, but all of it is almost held in reserve. It's just that look and your, your sense that he knows exactly what he's... Uh, uh, what he's saying. So to me, the two, obviously, the two really dominant ingredients here are baking and Britishness, taking them one at a time. You know, in baking, the proof is in the pudding, right? You can build the most elaborate carapace. It's still cake on the inside. It's an incredibly precise process and tiny errors magnify and you end up with something too dry, too soggy, undercooked, overdone. I mean, every little mark needs to be hit right Oh, and no matter how beautifully or cleverly you wrap it up, you're still going to have a failed cake. And I like, you know, what I like about it is there's just no way to sort of bullshit or style your way through it. Um, and then the second thing is you've got this el- elimination show, reality show TV format, which is incredibly stale um, and has always achieved ratings, at least in the American context, through uh, an undertone and sometimes tone, tone of nastiness. Um, uh, and cutthroat, you know, uh, well, just sort of cutthroat nastiness. Um, it seems to be completely absent from this one. So you've got that format embedded in the remnant of British, what? That was where I kind of stopped and wanted to think about it a little bit more, like social class, empire, familial tenderness, um, you know, as they express themselves now in restraint, deference, understatement. Um, and then just at the, you know, a friend of mine called the show Touching, um, civilized and touching. And it's funny because there's a ton of pressure. People get very upset when they think they've screwed up and are going to get voted off the island, as it were. Um, and yet at the same time, I do think that there, that it's, it's this we- weird way in which, you know, a totally pitiless naked meritocracy of baking and a competition reality show are somehow softened and made very human by a degree of I don't know, kind of humanity or civilization or something. And it's just, you know, it's just perfect for the age of Trump and Brexit somehow. Here's a a specific factor in the show, I think, that adds to that sense of kind of civility and and humanity rather than, you know, the cutthroat world of, of Survivor or, I don't know, even even Project Runway or another show that's that's based on a prize, right? There's there's usually a prize in reality shows. Either you get a ca- chunk of cash or you get some sort of business opportunity, uh, as in Project Runway. And on this show, there really is nothing but the honor of being the best baker. And that in itself is something that, you know, people aspire to so, so touchingly. Just the idea that that baking itself matters and, you know, being recognized for your talent matters is is something that's unusual in the landscape of reality. One other thing I really love about it is um, 
the respect it has for age. So we haven't explained the structure of it, but there's three challenges each week. Two of them they know in advance and can prepare for and practice at home. And you get a sense of which people are the A students who try things 20 times and which people are sort of trying to pull it together between their hectic lives. I know which camp I would fall into. Um, And then the second one is really the marvel of the show, the technical challenge, where they are surprised with a very complicated thing to bake and very minimalist instructions like make sponge batter, bake without temperatures, without times, without ingredients. And so they really have to demonstrate their expertise and knowledge. And one thing I love about the technical challenges is that often – there are more experienced people in the room. There's older people in the room, an age that you don't often see on reality shows. And they often just know a lot because they've logged more years in the kitchen. You know, ba- the experience of baking and sort of knowing uh, that's what it should look like. That's the right texture for a batter for this kind of thing. Mm, if you do it this way, it, you it'll come out of the pan better. I, it's just I can't think of other shows where experience is rewarded in the same way. And it's not always true. Sometimes there are these very young bakers who really have a ton of mastery and expertise, but there's just been a series of like grandma ninjas on the show who, and and sometimes grandpas as well, but just older people who really know their way around a kitchen cold. And I love that too, that it's not always the sort of ingenue bakers who take the cake, I was about to say, (laughs) by accident. And now I've said it. That pun would be very in the spirit of this show, which is full of extremely bad puns. Um, Something about the age of the contestants that I noticed with this latest season that just dropped is that they're getting younger. And that is something that I don't like. I don't have a strong feeling of nostalgia for the old Mary Berry days, because I always only watch this show sort of on and off. My daughter was obsessed with it and still is to some degree. And uh, so I've wandered in and out of many, many uh, showings of it, but haven't sat down to watch it all the way through really until we just talked about it. But I was going to say that I I really do prefer it when there's that range of demographic of ages. They're pretty good at, you know, having a a range of ethnicities. I don't know about the class background. I mean, everybody is doing well enough that they can have baking as their hobby. But you get a sort of sense of a a cross-section of Britain usually in the contestants. But I do like it when they have a few from different generations. They're looking a little bit uh, green this time around. Mm. All right. Well, I should have said also this is the 10th anniversary. It's one of the reasons we're talking about it now. Curious to hear from our listeners what your history with the show is and whether you're a Prue or a Mary or a, you know, um, or what have you. But uh, anyway, check it out. Great British Bake Off. Uh, It's on Netflix. Moving on. It has been only six years since House of Cards premiered on Netflix, which is really just an incredible fact. It feels as though we've been in this era, peak TV era forever, but no, it's really been a very brief uh, window of time. Uh, And it was that same year that Amazon began throwing various content spaghetti at the wall to see what stick. Of course, we ended up with Transparent, a bunch of other Amazon shows, led to an explosion which has been called, as I said, peak TV. On the one hand, you had a, a subscription model which allows for really uh, huge artistic risk-taking, especially relative to the medium of uh, television. On the other hand, though, it might be a kind of a bubble forming. There are so many shows dividing too much writing talent between them, uh, resulting in a lot of what I think we've experienced on this show is a lot of pseudo-good TV, almost good TV. Um, and then on the consumer end, you know, cord-cutting your cable provider only works if your streaming diet comes from a relatively small handful of providers. You can effectively pay 10 bucks or so to Netflix, equivalent 
to be an Amazon Prime, and you have a diet of TV shows. Well, of course, we knew that was not going to last. Uh, and we're inevitably, we're all going to end up tying the cord back together if you want to watch everything that's good on TV. Julia, you're the editor, I assume, who assigned this uh, really quite extensive and marvelous package in the LA Times about the streaming bubble and the fate of streaming TV. What what made you do that? And what do you conclude now that it's uh, in the can? One is that we've lived in the streaming era for six years. I also was astounded by that fact. It feels like it's been our new normal forever. But the streaming part of peak TV was really a second phase after The Sopranos and The Mad Men's and The Breaking Bad's kind of revamped various basic cable networks into ostensible competitors to HBO. Um, but what's happening in you know the next four weeks is that Apple and Disney, two of the biggest and most well-capitalized companies on the planet, and um, both companies with with significant strategic advantages are launching their own competitors to Netflix and Amazon Prime. And then coming next spring, we'll have competitors from uh, Peacock, which is an NBC aspirant in this realm, and from uh, Warner Media, owned by AT&T, which is the owner of HBO, which I suppose I should say is where my husband works. They're going to launch HBO Max. So uh, you know, the the forces have been amassing for this moment for a while. Um, Netflix and Amazon were able to build big audiences and build subscriber bases in part because they licensed old content from the rest of these studios and content crea- creators. Um, and as these places have realized, oh, man, we need to be in the streaming game, they have slowly been clawing back you know, old shows like Friends and Seinfeld, which used to be licensed out, but now will be uh, run on the streaming services owned by each corporation. And uh, it's just going to change things, but in ways that are unclear. Uh, it's not quite clear who, which of these services will be dominant. It seems unlikely that all of them will survive forever. I think there are probably a few favorites in the race. And I think part of why we want to do the package is that if you follow the business of Hollywood, this is an, a, a tale as old as at least a few years and feels very obvious. But if you are a consumer of television and just a watcher of stuff, you've sort of heard the ambient things, you've seen the marketing, you know that you're watching stuff, you've noticed trends in what you're watching. Um, but looking at the way those things intersect for the viewer at home is is part of what we wanted to get at. One piece that we ran um, was just a sheer tally of how much it would cost to subscribe to every single subscribing service we could think of, which was something like 450 odd dollars a month, Um, (laughs) you know, which is, you know, making Americans nostalgic for their cable providers is not a task that I think anyone thought anyone was up to. Like, what's worse than your cable provider and dealing with you know, cable outages and cable guys and the weird appointments and the bills and the overpricing and you feel locked in and you don't have any choices and it's essentially monopolistic. Um, But, you know, it was like kind of a neat idea that you just pay someone like a set fee every month and then all the stuff you might want to watch would be available through one device and one remote. (laughs) Um, So I think there's kind of a funny moment of oversubscription and, and feeling overwhelmed by the choice, both in terms of what to purchase and then what to watch on those things you have purchased uh, that we wanted to capture and depict and articulate for people. Dana, there was a ton of, you know, great material in that package. What leapt out at you? 
Uh, good question. I think, well, I mean, I'm not sure which piece it was from. Julia, you can set me straight on this. One fact that leapt out at me was was that um, among these providers of these new services, there's a lot of talk about whether the binging model still works and that a lot of most, in fact, of these new services that are being launched, Apple TV, Disney, et cetera, don't plan to dump things in giant 10, 15 episode packages, but rather to ration them out in different ways, either week by week, according to the old model of appointment viewing TV, or sometimes dangling a few episodes to tempt you at once and then getting into a week by week schedule. And uh, and that seemed really interesting to me because I myself am not a binger and have never identified with the binging model. And uh, and I hadn't quite seen that articulated before the way it was by whoever wrote on that on that factor. Yeah, that was uh, Meredith Blake and Yvonne Villarreal, two uh, reporters on our TV team. So both uh, Apple and Disney, um, Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus have articulated that they will be launching shows week by week. And the articulated reasoning there is essentially that you need uh, everybody to be watching things at the same time to build buzz around a show and to build that kind of water cooler sensation. I think the example the reporter cited was Succession, which really did build over time as people discovered it and and spoke about it. Um, and in a world where there was just Netflix doing a few season, seasons a year and they dumped a whole bunch of something juicy and everybody wanted to watch it all in one weekend, that worked. But as we've experienced, there is so much B-plus TV out there. There's just so much that um, you could watch and some people are watching, but there's less agreed upon centrality to any one show. It's just very easy for things to totally disappear in people's consciousnesses. So I think the notion that even as these huge corporations lean into the new technologies, uh, they will dole things out bit by bit. I think that will also change our landscape a little bit in terms of what we're watching and what we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, the consumer at the end of the day kind of wants a monopsony or duopsony, you know, or triopsony as the the buyer. They don't, in other words, you know, they kind of want Netflix, HBO, uh, and Amazon to be reliable providers. No one wants to build you know, build back up to a hundred dollar or so, or two hundred dollar monthly bill in order to get this content. Um, and um, you know, in the time that we've been doing this show, there have been two huge trends in American popular culture. They are totally coincident with us doing this podcast. The first is the arrival of Marvel Studios with Iron Man, and the uh, all in that the major film studios have gone uh, into the blockbuster model, the superhero movies, Star Wars. You know monopolistic intellectual property has defined the wide release, theatrical release movie business since roughly 2008. On the other side, you've got the rise of, you know, super gourmet, uh, aesthetically risky TV on one kind of subscription model or another, right? And what to me, it's just the relationship between these economic realities and content is what's so fascinating. The reason why you have to go to a blockbuster model and theatrical release is you have huge upfront costs in order to make a film without knowing whether it will play with audiences. So you are constantly trying to minimize that risk, uh, which means every movie is a Harry Potter movie, a Marvel movie, or a Star Wars movie, a huge built-in fan base, uh, massive opening, event-like opening weekend, and you can make your revenues uh, back whether or not the movie's good or bad and whether or not audiences like it. When you've got people subscribing on a monthly basis, 10 to 15 to $20, and you've got 100 million of them or, or 50 million of them or how many of a million of them, you have an incredible reliable revenue source that is not dependent on any one thing succeeding with the audience, which 
ironically, then allows you to actually really please an audience in a spontaneous, surprising, and interesting way. Um, and it just will be so interesting to see where that where the next 10 years takes us. I mean, a multiplicity of buyers competing with one another, I don't think is ultimately good for the consumer. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how much of this content you can access on an a la carte basis. I mean, I effectively have had Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, and and uh, some kind of a targeted HBO subscription. Everything else I do a la carte, uh, very often through Amazon. And uh, I've been able to watch everything. And in a world in which I'm suddenly having to piece together what amounts to a, a, a you know a cable subscription all over again, for me as a consumer, that's terrible financially. I also wonder what its effect is going to be on on the content. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking before more as a, as a critic, but as a consumer, a lurking fear that haunted me as I read my way through this package about the future of streaming was, you know, who's going to be gouging me next? I mean, in particular, I'm wary of Disney. And I remember that uh, that when, when The Lion King was about to come out, the new Lion King, Disney very cleverly took the old Lion King completely off every streaming platform and made it impossible to buy in any form except for just ordering an expensive DVD. And it just enraged me so much that Disney, you know, this this massive corporate gargantuan giant couldn't just put a popular kids movie up for sale for a reasonable price for people to watch before they go and see the new one. It's just Disney Disney will do anything they can to get money out of your pocket and into their pocket. So I think that's one that I will hesitate to subscribe to unless it offers something really sensational. Yeah, there's going to be all kinds of, Julia, all kinds of draconian hostage taking where you're just not going to have access to something you really want unless you pay pay up for the whole subscription fee. But Julia, I have a question for you. I'm very curious about this. Refining my early point, earlier point, it, a mul- my problem with the mul- multiplicity of deep-pocketed buyers, you would think that that would lead to a, you know, a, um, you know, a bumper crop of wonderful product. I think, aren't they going to be competing? I mean, there's only so much talent, visionary talent in the world, you know, especially cr- uh, writing talent. If all of a sudden everyone has deep pockets and you're dividing it up among a multiplicity of deep pocketed buyers, aren't you going to find more, you know, 12 episode shows that should have been four? A lot of, is it going to bring everyone down to a B plus and we're no longer going to have these great, irreplaceably iconic shows? Oh, I don't know. I feel like that's sort of an, that's like betting against the talent of the world in a way that feels, mm, spiritually miserly to me or something like there is going to be a ton of money for the next few years for creative people to do creative Mm -hmm. things and that is fundamentally to the good and probably there'll be a lot of mediocrity and some bad stuff and and hopefully a few extraordinary gems of breaking bad or fleabag um so it's hard to be against that i mean i think the notion that these corporations are spending is probably good, but the fact that the they are seeking to possess all of their IP and be very close to the vest with it is is actually going to be the thing that's more limiting. Like there's just going to be this series of walled gardens. I mean, so people will start launching their shows week by week, and then maybe you'll hear about one, but like what if it's on Apple TV Plus and you don't subscribe to that yet? There will be kind of a purchasing decision inherent in every cultural conversation you might want to join. And I do think to your concern about Disney, I mean, Disney is widely considered the favorite here. It has 
Marvel. It has Star Wars. It has this huge archive of children's programming, which which none of the rest of the services are great at. Netflix has a bunch. Amazon actually has been pulling back from its animated uh, children's programming, possibly in anticipation of the arrival of Disney into the marketplace. And because they are so well capitalized and because they know they're coming from established front runners in Netflix, both Disney and Apple are are launching with extremely low prices. Apple's going to be four ninety nine a month. Disney, I think, six ninety nine. Um, and you know, they're essentially undercutting the places that have made a bunch of complicated things for grownups and and a whole panoply of stuff. And saying, get the flavors you know, the existing flavors. So I think there there is some cause for concern that streaming, which has been a respite from the economics of the movie marketplace and allowed for much more creativity, could get clamped as more people subscribe to Disney. And Disney's like, hey, if you liked Beauty and the Beast and you liked the live action remake of Beauty and the Beast, here's our Beauty and the Beast children's animated show with the hijinks of the teacup and whatever. Um, so... Yeah, I'm I think I'm less concerned that talent will be spread too thin on the ground and more concerned that um players with more kind of conservative aesthetic values have a lot of clout and heat coming in to this forthcoming battle. All right. Anyway, the uh Julia congrats on the package. It came together beautifully. It's on the LA Times. I'm sure it's available on the website. Yes. Yeah. Ah, all right. Well, find it and check it out and tell us what you thought of it. All right, moving on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. Dana. Steven. Dana. Oh, no. Dana, I'm not not done here. (laughs) Dana, go ahead. What do you got? What are you endorsing? (laughs) I was waiting for one more iteration of my name. (laughs) Well, it didn't come. Oh, okay. In the spirit of Anglophilia and um, British pastoral loveliness from our great British baking show conversation, I'm going to endorse The Guardian Country Diary, which I think I've already tweeted about my love of The Guardian Country Diary. It's just a feature in The Guardian. It's a century-old column, which they occasionally run actually old versions of, if you if you follow them on Twitter, uh, on natural history and country life. And it's just a very short but always beautifully written column on some aspect of, of country life being observed by the writer who's wonderfully anonymous, unlike Verlin Klinkenborg, who used to write a similar but terrible column for the, for the Times. <laughs> they don't center themselves. I don't know exactly who writes The Country Diary, and I think it may be a variety of different people. Um, but it always is about just some wonderfully named little bird or plant in some sort of British, you know, um, Glen somewhere. And it just takes you out of the horrible world of Twitter where you're sinking in despair about Brexit and Trump and politics and just takes you to a lovely place. And to give you an idea of how great their headlines are, I mean, it really is just like a refreshing bit of birdsong peeping onto your onto your Twitter. I'll read you the last few headlines from The Country Diary. The last one was, House Martins linger on despite signs of winter. And before that, they went back to 1919 and reran a century-old column, Country Diary, called The Impudent Strut of the Jackdaw, which seems very Julia-friendly. <laughs> and going back are a few more. all of the more, columns about birds? They are really into birds, but there's also, you know, mushrooms and flowers and various little beasties of the, of the country. They are very, very into birds, though. So actually, a birder like you should love it. A few more just going back through their feed. A lone curlew's song is met with silence. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's a headline. Richness can be found among the rot. That's one about fungus in the forest floor. Honeysuckle is the last port in a storm for this hoverfly. 
<laughs> a couple more. A silent predator disturbs huddling gray plovers. Uh-oh. And finally, a quiet morning gives way to noise and commotion. I mean, I could go on and on. With a delicate flutter, the season has turned. They're just beautiful. And it's not even about re- reading the column necessarily, but I guarantee you, if you subscribe to this, you will adore their little headlines popping up to to refresh your your world. <laughs> That was the Dana East. Dana, <laughs> I've gotten in a long time. That was the pure stuff. All right, uh, Julia, what do you got? Uh, I am going to recommend a children's comic book series. Maybe it's not entirely a children's comic book series, but it's a comic book series that my children really love. It is called Super Dinosaur by the writer Robert Kirkman and the artist Jason Howard. Kirkman is probably best known for uh, co-creating The Walking Dead. He's, you know, I think considered one of the lions of the form these days. And Super Dinosaur is very charming because it, it reminds me of one of those kids' TV shows where you're just like these diabolical wizards. They came up with something that's crack for children's brains. Like I'm thinking of the uh, show Stinky and Dirty, which is a show about the friendship between a dump truck and a garbage truck, I think. Um, and Stinky and Dirty both seem like garbage trucks. Anyway, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, it's like high concept for children. Also, there's a show called Dinosaur Train, which combines the two favorite loves of extremely uh, avid toddlers, dinosaurs, and trains, and just puts the dinosaurs on a time-traveling train. This comic book series has that quality of, like, what if your best friend were a dinosaur and he had a magic suit that caused him to fly? But it's just really well told and essentially has kind of a complicated, almost soap operatic plot. It's probably a plot worthy of the Marvel Universe, which may incline you toward it or against it. Um, But it seems to dole out that kind of storytelling with dramatic scenes and conflict and escapes in a manner that is amenable to my twin six-year-olds. And another thing I love about it as someone who has read and enjoyed graphic novels, but also is not totally intuitive with the form, I sometimes find that the just sheer act of reading panels is a little disorienting to me. What, What are you supposed to read in what order? What goes where? It's not always intuitive to me. And this is just incredibly well designed. The art is really beautiful. You always feel like you know exactly where your attention is supposed to be on the spread. Um, and I think it's a really masterful set of drawings and a masterfully told comic. So if you have uh, young people in your life or are a comic fan, I recommend the four volumes of Super Dinosaur, which will teach you all about the tribulations of the dino men, inner earth, the quest for uh, the heretofore unknown um, element dinor, and uh, also includes really great puns for the evil dino men, including Triceratops and Painkillosaurus, which if you've spent the last five years learning about the real names of ancient dinosaurs, uh, are fairly charming. So Super Dinosaur, Robert Kirkman, check it out. I love it. Uh, okay. In addition to my endorsement, I have a couple of quick bits of business. The first, I completely for- uh, forgot. I've been totally remiss. As anyone who listens to this show knows, my uh, all-time most cherished dream is to have it downloaded in the Norf- uh, Norfolk Island uh, in the middle of the South Pacific. And um, we've taken one step in the direction of that. Bradley uh, wrote in from Sydney, Australia to say that his partner, Mark, is a Norfolk Islander, not only a Norfolk Islander, but a direct descendant of the lead bounty mutineer, Fletcher Christian, uh, which, uh, so I wanted to 
say uh, shout out to Bradley, beg him to bring a downloadable, a downloading device with him, internet connected downloading device with him next time he goes to Norfolk Island, make my dream a reality. But I also wanted to say that I called them the Kane mutineers. It's the bounty mutineers who ended up on Norfolk Island. And then a second mistake I made ages ago, it's just niggled at me ever since is um, I said that when King Lear says nothing, 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 it's iambic, it's not, it's trochaic. How did nobody write in to pedantically correct me? I'm very disappointed in our listening audience. And then this week's endorsements, uh, I told Julia I've been doing the LA Times crossword puzzle, which was quite a surprise to her. She said, we don't have a crossword puzzle. We syndicate it from the Chicago Tribune. I've been doing the Tribune crossword puzzle. It's my first extended experience, repeated experience with cruciverbalizing. I want to know whether I'm doing an easy puzzle or a hard puzzle. All I know is that that weekly, I guess it's their Sunday Tribune crossword puzzle takes me the whole week to complete, which is probably pathetic, but it's uh, it's just, I just freaking love it. And then finally, after years of meaning to do it, I've been reading the one a novel written by the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. It's called The Notebooks of Malta Lourdes Brig or Brigge. And it's just such expressionist, expressionistic weirdness, so beautifully contemplatively delivered. And there's just this riff on faces I have to read a little bit. Uh, I've never been properly, properly aware of how many faces there are. There are many people, but even more faces since everyone has several. There are people who wear a face for years, and of course it wears away, gets dirty, cracks in the creases, stretches like gloves you've worn whilst traveling. Those are thrifty, simple people. They don't change their face. They don't even have it cleaned. It's good enough they argue, and who, who can prove the contrary? But the question is, because they have several faces, what do they do with the others? They save them. Their children will wear them. But it sometimes happens that their dogs go out with them on. But why not? A face is a face. Other people change their faces over uncannily quickly, one after the other, and wear them out, and on and on and on. It just gets really wild. Um, I was terrified of seeing a face from the inside, but I was even more afraid of the naked, raw head with no face. It's just, its I don't know what, what to group this with, but maybe it reminds me as sort of a precursor of super early modern literature where people just trying to make sense. It sort of comes in between Baudelaire and T.S. Eliot, right? Like people are trying to make sense of the modern city and the, you know, sheer plenitude of of people who you don't know all in one place. Um, and, and, and what powers of language, you know, how can you make language new in order to confront this novelty of experience? It's just an amazing thing to read. Anyway, highly recommend it. Steve, when you said Rilke's novel, my ears perked up like, wait, Rilke wrote a novel? But and, but I, I love that book, and I know that book. I just never thought of it as a novel. I'm, I'm surprised to hear it presented that way, and I wonder if it's sort of marketed that way. The author that I associate it with, and I think I even wrote a little bit about the notebooks of Malta Lords Briga in my dissertation on Pessoa, is Fernando Pessoa, the Portuguese poet who is all about wandering through the city and yeah. you know kind of trying to gather all of those experiences into some structure of meaning, and who also wrote famously under all of these different names, right? And that's how I always thought of Malta Lords Briga as a sort of um, heteronym of, of Rilke himself, that it's more like a very mm-hmm. lightly fictionalized diary um, than, than a novel. But you're right that it's something that falls completely between genres, and it's a really beautiful book for young people, as a lot of Rilke is, and I don't mean that at all condescendingly or that it's mm-hmm. juvenilia or something like that, but just that um, it's he's, he's a writer who, if you read him in your teens or 20s, really forms your sensibility for decades afterwards. So I would say if you're listening to this and you're you know under 30, get on reading that right away. 
I mean, or or over thirty, of course. But I just I associate that with a particular um, writing of of youth that I adore. And and Dana, I don't mean to pull rank on you, but according to Wikipedia, it's his only novel. <laughs> Wiki. All right, I, I stand for <laughs> the higher power. I know you have a doctorate interceded. in comparative literature for Berkeley, but <laughs> go f yourself. All righty, um, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Email us. Please do it. We love your emails. They get better with every passing week. I'm not blowing smoke. Uh, You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And we have our new production assistant. Her name is Rachel Allen. Uh, For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. And uh, in this theory, unoriginality is a form of literary non-existence, right? The, the Nietzschean Freudian struggle against this precursor figure is always to wrest from this struggle your own selfhood, which may require patricide, you know, it's patricide or suicide uh, creatively. And and so it's this really deep psychic struggle to become a, a yeah. literary voice. <laughs>